It's Thursday, April 16th, 2020. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a limited-run podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, Pen America insists companies drop access fees to e-readers and tablets in America's prisons and jails for the duration of the coronavirus crisis. Then, Iranian author Ali Araji on the future, uncertainty, and the power of translation. I'm Stephen Fee, all that coming up on The Pen Pod. Today, PEN America, alongside dozens of other groups, sent a letter to the CEOs of companies that provide tablets and e-readers to the nation's prisons and jails. We're asking those companies to drop all access and pay-per-minute fees to use these devices for the duration of the pandemic. Joining me now to discuss, PEN America's James Taker. Hey, James. Hi. How are you, Stephen? Good, good. So James, quickly help me understand, what, what kind of content do folks in prison read on these digital devices, and why do they have to pay for it? Prison e-readers are really a, a new development in the world of access to literature in American prisons, and one we're watching very closely, because they're being billed as a replacement for physical books, books sent to individual incarcerated people, or books available in prison libraries. However, often the books that are made available are made available through uh, NGOs and and third parties such as Project Gutenberg, which makes available books that are already in the public domain and thus are free um, for no charge. Now, the problem is that uh, private e-book vendors, e-reader vendors, are basically making these available but charging per minute fees or access fees. So even though the content is free, they're still charging incarcerated people to access the content. And that's one of the biggest concerns when it comes to access to literature uh, in prisons today, which is that even uh, ostensibly free content is being privatized and being monetized. So, I mean, books in the public domain like Jules Verne or, or, or uh, you know, uh, Anna Karenina or something where the, the, the copyright has expired and the book should be free to access, the companies that make the readers are still charging people per minute to read them. Correct. And it's unfortunately this sort of wickedly ingenious way of getting around the fact that the content itself is uh, available for free. But obviously... From the perspective of access to literature, this is really problematic, especially when one considers the fact that the average incarcerated person, even if they have a a job in the prison, is usually making cents per hour so that these fees are actually really prohibitive to a large percentage of the prison population. So, so let me help me understand. So, so you you led the charge in putting this letter together. Why is now the time to waive these fees? Now is particularly the time to waive these fees because the ways that prison have prisons have responded to the coronavirus pandemic uh, deeply impact uh, incarcerated people. So, for example, prisons across the country have ended in-person visitations, have ended educational programs that would come to the prisons, um, have ended access to uh, to resources such as the prison library or to uh, prison jobs. Uh, increasingly, what we're seeing is that prisons respond by by imposing lockdowns so that incarcerated people are basically confined to their cells for 23 and a half hours a day. 
right? These are essentially disciplinary measures that have been retooled as public health measures. And what this means for the average incarcerated person is that their access to literature and other sources of recreation, education, and information is severely constrained. So that e-readers are one of the few ways that some, some incarcerated people can get access to information or books or other content. So it just seems particularly dismaying now to uh, have charges for that content, to have basically gates that have to be open for people to access that information. Now, I want to yeah. say, PEN America, and I presume many of the others who have signed on, though I don't mean to speak for them, uh, would love to see these charges waived forever um, as a way of, of uh, opening the gates to access to literature and other forms of content. But at this moment, particularly when you have incarcerated people across the country who are essentially put in lockdown, uh, not because of any disciplinary infringement, but because uh, of uh, the public health concerns, that this is a gate of access to information, recreation, and education that really needs to be thrown wide open. Yeah. Yeah. Well, James Tager is Deputy Director for Free Expression Research and Policy here at PEN America. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Stephen. Talk soon. Ali Araji came to the U.S. in 2011 from Iran. He's worked as a writer and translator, and just this month, his highly anticipated debut novel, The Immortals of Tehran, was published. Ali Araji joins me now. Hi, Ali. Hi. Thanks so much. So um, first of all, where are you calling in from right now? I am sitting in my living room in my one-bedroom apartment in St. Louis, Missouri. And there is, I don't know what's happening in St. Louis right now. Is there a lockdown order? Are you having to huddle in or is it sort of somewhere in between? Uh, we have a stay, uh, stay at home in order in. Um, it's not a lockdown lockdown, but yeah, we're like, we can't go out for groceries and, and exercise, do like emergency work, doing exercise at the park, but just, uh, just essentials. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So I, I want to talk to you first about, I mean, obviously the situation in Iran has been so horrific with the coronavirus. And I just want to know, I mean, how's your family? Do you hear from your friends and colleagues? You know, what, what, what do you hear about what's happening there? Uh, well, my family has been okay so far. And um, by okay, I mean, they have managed not to get infected so far. Uh, well, my mother had knee replacement surgery on both her knees about six months ago, so she had to stay home a lot uh, to recover. So in that sense, she had been practicing some kind of quarantining for some time. But on the other hand, she had to start taking walks after a few weeks to, uh, to help the prosthetic joints work. But now she has to either skip those wa walks or uh, shorten them. Um, most people I, I know are trying to stay home. Um, actually, the past two weeks were the New Year holidays in Iran. Mm -hmm. Iranian New Year starts up with the first day of spring. And uh, and it's a rather social um, type of holiday. People usually visit their families and friends, and usually they begin with the elder members of the family, like grandfathers, grandmothers, um, uncles, aunts. Uh, so there's this age hierarchy. So you can see that there is there's this recipe to get the most vulnerable members of the family infected. Uh, so people have been trying, uh, have been canceling on those visits, trying not to take tri trips. Um, there are cases that uh, uh, 
kind of it's kind of more scary for them the situation a friend of mine he has ms and both of his parents are um on the older side and they have a a positive case in their building so they have been staying at home um yeah yeah it's 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 quite something i mean just how quickly this has sort of overtaken all all of our lives i i want to ask you you know obviously i want to talk about the book but you you actually had a piece in the new yorker um and i was really struck by you know you you tell the story about you first came to the u.s to study at at notre dame in, in indiana and that you were struck by people talking casually about their future plans, that they had like a certainty about the future. And first of all, I want to just sort of plumb that a little bit and get your sense of what you mean by that. And secondly, you know, now that we're all facing a certain degree of uncertainty, I wonder if your perspective has changed at all. Uh in that piece, I was trying to uh, make the point that my future back in Iran was less foreseeable that, than when I came here first. And I was trying to think of that uh, in terms of man-made sociopolitical structures that created that those futures differently in, in two countries. Uh, I was trying to be very personal in that mm-hmm. article and not to generalize my experience as a kind of typical Iranian experience versus an American one. Of course, these things are not, these societies are not, uh, are not monolithical. And definitely uh, those experiences were not universal. Uh, I have no doubt that many people here in the U.S. had uh, much less predictable features than me. And there were a lot of people in Iran who had much more certainty about their futures. Uh, but the key word there was was kind of man-made. Um, but man, things have changed here. Uh, <laughs> so the the outbreak in the in the past couple of weeks uh, has had a very um, kind of democratic. That's a too positive word. Maybe a kind of universal or global effect uh, around the world and including uh, here in the U.S. Um, I feel like it's. It's a pretty much the same effect that like we all are now in the same boat, more or less, that we don't we don't see what's gonna happen. There's this feeling that all of us are in this together. We don't know if uh, we're gonna have our jobs in the next week or so, if mm-hmm. schools are gonna open. So in that sense, there there seems to be uh, a very like unfortunate uh, similarity between uh, the two experiences. Yeah. I, I want to talk about, about your book, the, the Immortals of Tehran. I mean, in, in so many ways, it's a saga. I mean, it, it follows Ahmad through, you know, really what was this tumultuous 20th century in, in Iran and, and truly the world. Uh, I'm wondering how much, you know, obviously it's a work of fiction, but how much did you draw on your own family history, family stories, family fables to, to piece this together? Uh, I want to say little. Um, mm-hmm. but if, if there, if, someone looks deep into my life and psyche, they would find uh, certain aspects of me and my life in the novel. I'm going to give you some examples, perhaps the most uh, uh, obvious ones to me, at least. Uh, Ahmad, like uh, he's the protagonist, like you said, uh, Ahmad's uh, great, 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 great grandfather is a very old man. No one knows how old he is. He's, his name is Aga. Um, so this is actually what I called my grandfather, and uh, perhaps one of the reasons that the working title of the novel was Aga uh, was because my grandfather was very dear to me. Mm. But other than that, there is 
there's not much similarity between that character and my grandfather. My grandfather didn't live particularly long enough. Uh, uh, my mother got divorced when I was very little and remarried. I grew up living with my stepfather. So maybe the absence of the father in the novel and this strong mother character would be a direct link to to my own life and the other thing is that i myself started off as a poet before i quit writing uh poetry and turned to fiction um but yeah other than that like i said there's not a lot that i can think of that ties directly to my own life and honestly even those connections don't feel very very personal to me Mm -hmm. um certainly not a direct borrowing uh, from my own life, maybe unconscious, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, you know, obviously you're 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 a writer, as you say, you were a poet. Um, you've also worked as a translator, and I wonder, you know, especially right now, the world feels really closed off. What do you think about the the power translators play in in bridging divides right now? Honestly, literature without translation doesn't mean much to me. Even, even in quote-unquote normal times when there is no pandemic, the concept of national literature feels a little bit myopic and claustrophobic to me. Uh, my reading lists have, have always been very eclectic. From a very young age, I read books in translation, as well as those uh, written originally in Persian. And, uh, and it was not just me. It was not like my uh, personal own choice. The Iranian literary market in general is more open to translations. Uh, Mm. Some statistics I have from a few years back say that uh, about 20% of all titles published in Iran in 2013 were in translation. And uh, it doesn't doesn't seem like the number has dropped in the past years. Now, if you compare that number with the famous 3% in the US, that tells you something about the status status of translation in, in the two literary scenes. Um, in that sense, not much has changed for me personally. Actually, all the books I'm reading now are in translation. Um, but maybe one function of translation we could think about is the way it shows how literatures of other cultures have reacted to similar problems we are dealing with. Uh, mm-hmm. To give an example, uh, or and give get back to our pandemic situation, um, this is not something that that's happening for the first time in the world. Giovanni Boccaccio's The Decameron is uh, famously is a collection of tales from the 14th century Italy, ironically. Uh, there's a number of people taking shelter in a villa uh, to escape the Black Death, and they're mm-hmm. telling each other tales. Um, well, now I'm not suggesting that we should take medical advice from 14th century Italian manuscripts. But it's good to know that there were other people in the world that had uh, similar uh, experiences. Uh, More recently, there's the plague by Albert Camus and and Jose Saramago's Blindness that talk about uh, afflictions that uh, affect a big population. Uh, This is just a few examples of how other other writers and other cultures have, have seen and felt situations similar to ours, and they come to us through translation. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, it, 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 it doesn't just generate literature about 
the the pandemics themselves, but it's a it's a time of the generation of a lot of literature that that authors have often taken advantage of you know moments of global pandemic or panic to to actually write some of their greatest works, even if they have nothing to do with disease. I mean, are you finding are you able to write right now? Are you writing right now? Uh, I, I I do find myself able to write in in this situation. Uh, I am not writing at this moment uh, because I'm busy with schoolwork and uh, and a lot of events happening around the publication of the novel. Um, but there's one thing uh, that hasn't changed that drastically about my life too, and it's the fact that since I moved here to the U.S., I don't have that uh, large network of friends and, and family. So it kind of feels like in the past uh, couple, couple of years, I have uh, lived a kind of hermit-like life that, <laughs> that a lot of us are, are experiencing right now. Of course, it's, it's much more restricted and limited right now. Um, but the change has not been as drastic for me as uh, for a lot of other people around me. Yeah. Well, Ali Aragi is author of the new book, The Immortals of Tehran. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And that's our episode for Thursday, April 16th, 2020. Join us tomorrow for the Pen Pod for our weekly Tough Questions segment with Suzanne Nassel and an interview with film exec Franklin Leonard. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Sign up on our website for our daily DARE newsletter, where we track major stories about literature, free expression, and the news of the world. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you tomorrow.